With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you suffer from chronic hip, knee, or shoulder pain? Avoid drug dependency and surgery with Downtown's Healthcare in Denver. Downtown's Healthcare offers regenerative therapies that stimulate the body's self-healing process. Call Downtown's Healthcare at 303-292-9992, now in Lowry or downtown. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What you know? Go, go. What is going on, Billy Up Sports fan? It's your favorite history teacher, Mr. Parker Ainsworth, here in another edition of FN Sports, the podcast where teachers grade sports' biggest issues. And we just had the NFL Hall of Fame game. We are officially into football season. And so since we just inducted a whole class of 2022 people into the NFL Hall of Fame, it's time to start looking at 2023. We're going to do a little bit of a breakdown. We'll call it like a class rank as to who will get into the Hall of Fame in 2023, or at least make some predictions so without further ado, let's dive on in. All right, so we should probably break down how this happens first to kind of explain what happens. But what the NFL does is they send out lists to a bunch of writers and other Hall of Famers and things like that across the NFL or the NFL world, I should say. And they whittle down lists of like 50 to 25 to so on. And they kind of slowly, slowly, slowly take down several lists of eligible people. That's the senior class, which is like the elderly folks, guys from previous generations of football. That's how you get guys like Cliff Branch next to a Richard Seymour next to a Dick Vermeil because they have an entire group where you have to pick a couple of people from previous generations of football that either were playing well before they were thinking things like this Hall of Fame, before it wasn't anywhere near as big a deal, before they had bigger than a couple people in a class. Those kinds of people make the senior list. They're previous generations of football players. There's a or like a grouping of coaches slash contributors. This is where you see front office people. Sometimes you see writers. Sometimes you see, obviously, coaches and people that fill out coaching staffs, all for the stuff they do around football but isn't playing football. So if you are a 
player, you can go in as a player. And then if you're like Troy Aikman, you can also later go in as someone doing the play-by-play. Or if you're someone that played and maybe wasn't a Hall of Fame player, but you can go in as a coach. Right. So there's a whole section for just people that contributed to football without playing it. And then there's a section for modern players, people that are playing in the modern game. The definition for modern is kind of loose, but it's really look at someone who's retired five or so years ago and has had a few years since then maybe to kind of be on the ballot or to remain on the ballot because they get a certain amount of votes and so on. So the modern group of guys will be guys that played in the late 2000s, so like between 2005-2010 or then the 2010s, guys that have retired sometime in that window. And so therefore you're seeing this list of modern players going to be guys that are fairly familiar to everyone who's watched football in the 21st century. And then the senior class of players is typically guys that you would have been watching football in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Actually, we're kind of getting to the point now that we're in 2022 going to 23 that you're actually seeing guys from the 80s and earliest of the 90s also in this list. Now, typically a guy from like 92 played from like 79 to 92 and they just, you know, a long career. But that said, like, we're spanning the entire spectrum of looking at things here. And so we're going to break down who should from each of those different delineations make their way in. It's worth pointing out that the NFL only pulls in four to eight players or people, because you could also have coaches and things like that, in a given year. So theoretically, you could have like one player from the old era, one player from the new era, and two coaches, or however that shakes out. Or you could have up to eight. You could have like one coach, two old players, and five modern players. We're going to bend the rules a little bit. We, <laughs> we're going to have some outside looking in kind of guys for each category. We're also going to, if I'm being blunt, because the modern era is like my life of football, we're going to have five, and so we're going to actually end up at nine people. I can't separate a couple of these guys. I think they're all Hall of Famers. And to be fair, they don't all have to go in the same year. Theoretically, guys could stay on the ballot if they receive a certain amount of votes from year to year. So with that said, let's get into looking at who in our class ranking of sorts will make it on the seniors list for the next Hall of Fame ceremony in 2023. All right, so I have two guys on my outside looking in of the seniors group. Now, if they elected five seniors, I could see how all five of these guys make it in, but I'm only going to have three seniors. So on my outside looking in, I'm going to start with Roger Craig. Now, Roger Craig was a three-time Super Bowl champion, played the bulk of his career with the San Francisco 49ers, was an Offensive Player of the Year in 1988, uh, was an All-Pro one year, second-team All-Pro, multiple Pro Bowls. Uh, he was the NEA MVP, which is back when they had multiple publications handing out the NFL's MVP award. Anyway, he's the first player to ever score three touchdowns in the Super Bowl and has the uh, record, or is still tied for the record, with most touchdowns in a Super Bowl. If the objective is to win, it's hard to argue that other guys did more to help teams win the big game than Roger Craig. He's a 1980s all-decade team, which the NFL does every decade, which kind of makes these things easy to go back and look at. But Roger Craig is, I think, also in like terms of reflecting on modern history of football. He's the first guy to have a thousand yard rushing and thousand yards receiving in the same season dual threat running back in a time well before that was even close to common much less necessary so roger craig is on the outside looking in you're going to see the three names i've got he's very very close but i've got roger craig just at the edge from those 1980s 49er teams the next guy I'm going to let in is an offensive lineman. I guess we're going to list him as a guard, although at various points in his career he played tackle and center. 
Rob Kuchenberg played guard most of his career as he, I guess, technically started with the Philadelphia Eagles uh, and then eventually spent 14 years playing for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, two-time Super Bowl champion. That's also including the 1972 undefeated team, the only ever undefeated team in NFL history. Uh, multiple-time All-Pro, multiple-time second-team All-Pro. He's on the Hall of Honor, or the, like, the honor roll of sorts around the Miami Dolphins. And I feel like all of those guys from that 72 team will eventually make their way in. So while Cooch doesn't necessarily make it right off the bat here, I do think the late, great Rob Kuchenberg will make it eventually, as all of those Dolphins guys will make it eventually. Again, they had an undefeated team. It's historically speaking, 17-0, it's, it's the best team ever created. I know it's hard to think about 17-0 being the best team ever when 17 games is just the regular season now, but they won every game they set foot on the field for, and bluntly... They went to the Super Bowl in 71, went undefeated, won the Super Bowl in 72, and won the Super Bowl again in 73. That window of Miami Dolphins teams is pretty, pretty strong, and I feel like all those guys will make it in eventually. I just don't have him in quite yet. First guy I have getting in in this group of senior players is Billy White Shoes Johnson, because if I'm being completely honest, I had no idea he wasn't in yet. How was this guy not in yet? Played 14 seasons, three Pro Bowls, uh, changed the game a little bit as far as receiver goes because of his speed, the way he took the top off, obviously famous for things like his touch on celebrations, those kinds of things, the celebrations being, make it hard to tell the story of football without talking about Billy White Shoes Johnson. I think that needs to be the main criteria in getting into the Hall of Fame here. I can't talk to people about the history of football and not mention his name. Now, does that mean I'm going to talk about him as an Oiler or as a Falcon or as a Redskin or whatever? I don't know which of those guys you want to go with as far as which Billy White Shoes Johnson you want to put in, but one of those guys has to be in. He's on two different all-decade teams is on the 75th anniversary all-time team and the 100th anniversary all-time team. I don't know how he's not in, so he's got to make his way. He's already in the College Football Hall of Fame. It's time to get him into, as a senior, into the NFL's Pro Football Hall of Fame. The next senior I'm going to argue to get put in is also in the College Football Hall of Fame and not the NFL Hall of Fame, Tommy Nobis. Tommy Nobis was the NFL's Rookie of the Year for the expansion 1966 Atlanta Falcons. He was the first overall pick for said franchise and went on to be a multiple-time All-Pro, Pro Bowler, etc. He's on the NFL's 1960s All-Decade team, but as a pass rusher before pass rushing was commonplace, uh, he played a linebacker at a time where football players and linebackers were all much more like almost quasi-defensive ends. He's the only player to wear number 60 for the Atlanta Falcons. He was their inaugural rookie, their first first overall pick in their expansion season. Went on to have a type of career that they retired his number for and frankly had they not been an expansion team had they been a team that was more set up for success and on the early stages of being a franchise he might already be in the hall of fame the only things that separate him from a number of his contemporaries and counterparts across the nfl's hall of fame landscape the guy's already in is that he doesn't have the team success and thus he doesn't get the same kind of accolades or same kind of pats in the back but on the field the film itself he's the same kind of player they're just down on the scoreboard because it's an expansion franchise and if we're going to continue to have things like the NFL draft we probably shouldn't punish guys for just being drafted to crappy teams or just starting teams especially in the city like Atlanta where they love the Atlanta Falcons like that's a very passionate fan base and franchise even if they've had mixed success we're gonna talk about the Super Bowl with Patriots blah 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 but the Atlanta Falcons faithful will tell you that it's not 
his fault by any stretch that they didn't win games. He's a Hall of Fame caliber player that for some reason has not gotten in yet. Again, if you can't tell the story of the NFL without them, they need to be in the Hall of Fame, and you certainly can't tell the story of one of the 32 franchises, the Atlanta Falcons, without him. He's the most impactful Falcon on the field. He continues to serve as a Falcons member of the front office and those kinds of things afterwards as well. They, as a franchise, cannot be talked about without talking about Tommy Nobis. I don't really understand how that's not qualification in and of itself. My third and final senior getting in is Dallas Cowboys legend Chuck Howley. Now, I guess he was technically drafted by the Chicago Bears, but he's a Dallas Cowboys legend because, A, he does end up winning a Super Bowl. We talked about the 1971 Super Bowl that the Miami Dolphins lost before going undefeated the next season. He's on that Cowboys team that beats them in the Super Bowl in 1971. He's also the Super Bowl MVP the year before, even though the Dallas Cowboys lost to the Baltimore Colts. And I think what's interesting here is Again, in telling the story of the NFL, everyone mentions the only time a Super Bowl MVP has ever been handed to someone on the losing team. I think that's part of the folklore of the NFL. It's much like, you know, there's Jerry West stuff with the NBA and those kind of the same kinds of stories, but Chuck Howley does it in the NFL as an, a linebacker on a defense that, again, gave up 16 points, said Super Bowl, but he still gets the MVP as they designate him as a weak side linebacker but if you go back and pull up those clips which is a really fun thing to do go back and pull up some of these elder senior type guys clips he is all over the football field i don't really know how you could watch that tape and not imagine that he is the nfl the super bowl mvp and i think again if you're telling the story of the nfl how can you not mention that it's got this guy that wins the super bowl mvp even though he's a linebacker on the losing team yes we can bring up the all pros he's in the you know six-time all pro pro bowler etc he's cowboys ring of honor all those kinds of things but again that single we we glorify these performances in the big game we need to identify that if we're going to hold those things to a high standard and not put a guy like tom novus in because he never got to the game we need to then put that high standard on letting guys like chick cowley in the hall of fame i don't really get why he's not in yet i understand that there's probably some texan dallas cowboys bias coming in with me <laughs> why why they not he in yet however he was inducted in the hall of honor like around the dallas cowboys back in the 70s right after he retired he has been long discussed as a legend in nfl football it's time to get him into the hall of fame <laughs> All right, now, before we get into the OLI, the outside looking in of the coach or contributor getting into the Hall of Fame as far as that designation goes, I want to mention that I am not going to put Bud Adams into this Hall of Fame. I'm keeping him out. He ran a pro football team in the state of Texas, the Houston Oilers, and moved them out of Texas. Think about all you know about Texas and football and those kinds of things, and and he's a micromanager of the franchise across, I mean, he in the Bud Phillips era and all of the 1970s and 80s as well, but then you get to the mid-90s, and he wants to get things like the public funding for a new stadium and not play in the Astrodome, even though the Astrodome had just been renovated. He says, no, I want out of this, and Lanier, uh, Mayor Bob Lanier in the city of Houston is like, no. I'm not giving you a whole new stadium. We just renovated, it took money out of the city of Houston's pockets to renovate the Astrodome, and now you want to build a new stadium just for you? Y'all going to share it just like everyone else in America shared? In the 1990s, it was not uncommon to see football and baseball teams share a stadium, and so of course that's what they're going to do. They just renovated the stadium that both teams played in. <sighs> anyway, I digress. We're not putting in Bud Adams. My outside looking in is Amy Trask. 
Trask first started working as an intern with the LA Raiders at the time in 1983 and worked her way up to eventually becoming the CEO of the Raiders in 1997. Uh, she then served as the CEO for like 16 years. Over those 16 years, obviously the tail end there, the Raiders kind of had fallen apart, but the early parts, they like go to Super Bowl and stuff. Like This is a very good run for the Raiders with her in charge. And I also think it's worth pointing out that as a woman entering the field of upper level sports management in 1983, as an intern, she works all the way up to being the CEO. I think that's a story that needs to be told. But I also get how once she becomes the CEO of the Raiders, they have a good front-end run, those first like six or seven years, and then eventually like things kind of go south. And so I'm going to put on the outside looking in. If you wanted to put more than one person in from the coach contributor category, I could see how she gets in, but I'm not quite putting her in yet. All right, so the controversy here is the guy I am putting in is Robert Kraft. Now, Robert Kraft has a number of off-the-field issues that we could dive into deeper, but those are separate podcasts for the days. And what I will say is, is that those types of issues have not kept other people out of the Hall of Fame from this type of position. For what it's worth in that soliciting prostitution case, uh, I guess the case did get thrown out because of the evidence had been illegally obtained or questionably obtained or whatever before it goes to trial. And I... I'm not going to sit here and say that he was guilty. I'm saying that clearly that tape had him on it, and then they had to throw it out in the case full of parts. Again, I digress. But Robert Kraft makes it as a contributor or coach because, A, while well, soliciting prostitution is illegal. It's not quite the grossest thing that someone in the NFL Hall of Fame would be in with. And, B, as a principal owner, he has seen the New England Patriots win six Super Bowls. And he only got this position in 1994. I think it's like very quick to be like, oh, He's been the CEO of this his whole life, and really, he just got it 94, and by 2002, they're winning their first Super Bowl, and by 2022, they're winning six Super Bowls. And again, I understand that there's Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski. I'm the first person to say that this is a team effort of sorts, but he's the guy signing the checks to everyone on the team making it happen, and if we're going to look at people that contribute to football in a non-playing fashion, I think you got to look at him. If you look at the history of football in New England slash Boston before he gets there, there's only a handful of playoff appearances, much less any kind of championship aspiration or anything like that. Truthfully, the franchise, as he gets there in 92, it's been, what, seven years since they made the playoffs and lost in the first round of the playoffs. They had lost in the Super Bowl in 1985, and that's like the big run. But that was kind of this like Cinderella story type thing where they went 11-5 that season out of nowhere and then the next season they go 11 to 5 and lose again in the first round and that's the most extensive type of success the franchise had had at all before Kraft shows up and now they're like the franchise we associate in the NFL with winning it's like them and I guess the Steelers have super seven Super Bowls and if you want to go like to the early 90s Cowboys but certainly not the last 25 30 years of Cowboys all of a sudden it's like he completely as an owner has shifted how we view that franchise in sports and I think that has to get him into the Hall of Fame if nothing else all right so again I kind of cheated here and ended up putting five guys in as modern era players because that's like my lifetime of watching football and so I really really want to plug some of those guys. I think we should start with the outside looking in, though. A couple guys that did not quite make the list. Shane Leckler actually might get in if you look at like his Hall of Fame type of resume. However, I'm just not going to put a punter on my list. <laughs> he did play 17 years. He did make an all-pro team like, what is this, 
nine times. He did make two different all-decade teams because of when those 17 years overlapped. Uh, he's on the 100th anniversary all-time team in the NFL. He probably will eventually make it into the Hall of Fame as a punter. It's just not fun to talk about punters when you can talk about all these other types of players. And frankly, while he was, again, all-pro a couple nine times in his 17-year career, some of the longevity things about being a 17-year pro we kind of need to make relative to punting because punters do that much more frequently than any position in the NFL. And as we see advances in sports medicine and longer careers and so on for key kind of guys, we're going to see punters get closer to 2025 a lot more often. So some of these long-term numbers, not to be like he's compiling stats because he's playing a long time, but some of these long-term numbers will kind of become like a commonplace thing for Hall of Fame caliber players. And so while Leckler is a Hall of Fame caliber player, I'm not really sure how I'm going to relate that to what punters are coming in the next 10 years to the Hall of Fame. And so we're not going to let that waste down. We're going to keep on moving. The first guys on the outside looking in that I have a really hard time not putting in, but I just I couldn't make six spots, is Chris Johnson. Johnson was a 2009 Offense Player of the Year, had 2,000 yards rushing, and frankly, he will likely be one of the last ever to rush for 2,000 yards. Fellow Tennessee Titan Derrick Henry just did it in 2020, and I don't think we're going to see anyone else after Derrick Henry that can like shoulder the load of being a team's lone running back the way that they used to do it, and so that's going to split up those same rushing yards. That's a digression about modern football. Anyway, Chris Johnson was a one-of-one type of football player, and that 2009 season is one of the most impressive individual seasons I've ever seen with my own two eyes. Johnson had five other seasons of a 1,000 or more yards. I think the thing that hurts him in my eyes when looking at this list, and I hope you agree too, is that as a running back, and this just makes it hard for running backs, is his career is just kind of short. He's got the 2,000 yards, and I get that that might be enough to get him in, if not this first time around, his second or third, because again, that was that phenomenal of a season. But we saw Adrian Peterson do it right before that. Uh, we saw Derrick Henry do it just a couple seasons ago. So he's not the only guy in the era to ever do that. And while I think he's one of the last to ever do that, we might never see a guy do that again. I think the guy that kind of gets that credit for being last will be Derrick Henry. I don't know. I just think that he is one of one. That season was that kind of special. I just I can't quite put him in based on how special that one season was when his other seasons were just normal, all-pro, maybe not Hall of Fame caliber running back seasons. So I'm going to have to have him on the outside for a minute. My other two guys that have the outside looking in are really kind of going together, and I wish I could put Mike Tolbert or John Kuhn in because they're fullbacks in a world that like we don't see those kinds of guys anymore. Tolbert and Kuhn were fullbacks that could block and could carry the football, but were not tight ends that go out and play like the H-back type position, and that position might be gone. The same way we talk about the 2,000-yard rusher, Derrick Henry being the last one, that position might be gone for good, and I'd like to see those guys get in. I could see how those guys would get in. The thing that I think just hurts them a little bit is obviously we think of them getting the short yardage, those like two-yard run, but they get a touchdown. They have a total of four rushing yards a game, but they have two touchdowns or whatever because they have the short yardage situations. They're not, as far as like statistical rushing stats, quite Hall of Fame type of fullbacks. When you look at the kinds of fullbacks that get into the Hall of Fame, they were blocking backs. They were big, strong blocking backs but when you look at the fullback position in the hall of fame it's typically guys that can do both and i like tolbert i like coon i'm an offensive line guy you know i like blocking 
I just look at what types of fullbacks make it in the Hall of Fame, and unfortunately, it is those guys that do both. All right, so the first guy I'm putting into the Hall of Fame in the modern era is Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas might be one of, if not the best offensive tackle I've ever seen play football. I could go on to the accolades about what he did well, that how few, and all those bad Browns teams, how few sacks allowed he had, and those kinds of things. But I think the deal is he kept up the Pro Bowl level play, and ten-time Pro Bowl or 2010s All-Decade Team, uh, Cleveland Ring of Honor, those kinds of, those things are all there. But the Iron Man aspect to Joe Thomas is, I think, what puts him over the top and makes him, even on a bunch of teams that were not very good, a very clear first ballot Hall of Famer. He played 10,363 consecutive snaps. That's the longest streak since the NFL began recording the stat in 1999. Uh, He's the epitome of showing up and going to work every single day, doing his job at the highest level while doing his job and being selfless about it. He's not going to go out there and complain about how bad the Browns were. He never demanded trades, never did those kinds of things. He was ultimately loyal to a franchise that bluntly kind of stunk historically. Stinks now. We don't need to get into the, we have a whole episode about the quarterback controversy and all those things happening in Cleveland. You go back and check the catalog. However, if we look at just the Joe Thomas era of Cleveland Browns, they went over 500 exactly one time with Joe Thomas and the lineup. They only had seven wins one of the time with him in the lineup. Most of their seasons were four and 12, five and 11 kinds of seasons, including one 0-16 type of season. However, you look at things like average value or players, the highest value over replacement player, Joe Thomas blows everyone on the roster and most people in the NFL out of the water. Now, I don't need to get into the math and nitty-gritty and be a total stat nerd about how difficult that is to do, but to be at the top of the NFL and value over a placement player on a team that wins no or next to no games is wild. I, I don't think that you can understand how unreal his like pro football focus types of grades and how great he was at his job without just watching him maul guys at left tackle but that was truly something special to watch for all 10 seasons he or all 11 seasons 10 years he was in the nfl and it was frankly kind of almost like you know pain in the chest oh man when he retires right before they go in that little like Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham, like relevancy streak right like that was painful to watch because Joe Thomas put in a decade of his life for a team that was nowhere near that good just to keep the franchise afloat, frankly. It's no accident that he made 10 All-Pro teams in an 11-year career. I mean, he's truthfully a bright spot in the darkest spot of a franchise that has a lot of dark spots, and so Joe Thomas has to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't understand how he could not be a first ballot kind of guy. You could talk about how he like created different types of ways to shot put off the line or about how incredibly strong that two-handed under like undercut punch he's doing as a left tackle pass blocking or you talk about how he down blocked on counters and stuff like that but if you just look at the longevity of all pro play across a franchise that has never seen that type of play or hasn't certainly seen that in a long long time i think it's an automatic check joe thomas needs to be in the hall of fame joe thomas won like 48 games in his 11 year career the next guy, Dwight Franey, had a lot more team success and frankly had a lot more offensive firepower up 
on the opposite side of the field from him. But Dwight Freeney as a defensive end, I think, is also going to be a first ballot kind of guy getting in here. Uh, I, I think what's interesting here is you talk about, like, we did this with the senior groups and those kind of things, telling the story of football. When you look at, like, revolutionizing the pass rush and, frankly, adding creativity and those kinds of things, the Dwight Freeney spin move does change how we view pass rush. You used to have all these different things to do with a football player as your pass rusher got past the quarterback level, ways to get back, etc. Now the spin move, ice pick, etc., is like a staple in every defensive line's like toolbox, right? All the defensive linemen that work on things, they work on this to do what Dwight Freeney started doing at a revolutionary type of level as a pass rusher. Dwight Freeney wasn't all flash. He wasn't all spin moves. He actually played the run incredibly well, probably because he's like a short, stocky frame. He's a 6'1 defensive end, right? Uh, he also, at the time, was getting paid as much as any defensive player in the NFL had ever done to that point. He made $72 million in like 2006 or 2007. As I look at the entirety of Dwight Freeney's career, I think Hall of Famer, I've got him in the first ballot because I think... I value what he did as a defensive lineman at an incredibly high level because as we've seen around the time of his career until now, one of the only ways to slow down the pass-happy offenses of modern football is to have a guy like Dwight Freeney rushing the passer and disrupting the offense because you're not allowed to do the same kinds of hand-checking, hip-checking, etc. with receivers down the field. And frankly, you have to get the quarterback super, super fast if you're going to get to them at all. So what Dwight Franey did as a pass rusher was only amplified by the era he played in. After a fairly successful stint with the Annapolis Colts, he went to San Diego and had an early, or early in his time in San Diego injury, which kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Uh, I, I think that it's worth pointing out, though, he still had things like a big force symbol for a touchdown while he was there. He then eventually gets to Arizona and has, uh, you know, a couple big weeks of football while he's in Arizona. And that was a good Arizona defense that he, like, captained as far as, like, a locker room kind of guy would go on these kinds of things. But if that career never had that altering injury in 20, oh, I think it was 13, 2013, I, I have to say that I think that the continued, he, he had 125 sacks across his 15-year career, like the continued impact from this like bowling ball of a defensive end is a surefire Hall of Fame career. I've got him in the first ballot because I saw that early career, the, the six or seven year run in Indianapolis as worth it. That's a six or seven year run of Hall of Fame football. I guess I could see he could talk me out of it if not because it's you know second ballot kind of guy, a third ballot kind of guy, but I'm going to put him on the first ballot he's in because of how dominant that first stretch of football was. All right, so much like our previous two modern NFL Hall of Fame Class of 2023 inductees, I'm going to induct Daryl Rivas, who's one of the best to ever do what he did, just like Thomas and Freeney were. The stretch of football Revis played from 2007 to 2012, and even the stuff later in his career with like his run with the Patriots and those kind of things, are truly once-in-a-lifetime type of coverage and once-in-a-lifetime type of football. You get to watch Revis create Revis Island because he truthfully <laughs> covered and surrounded everything like water, but he, he also just completely changed, revolutionized, in a pass-happy era of football, what we think of as possible for a single defender he would take away entire halves of the field as a corner covering he's going to mark up your best guy and lock them down on an entire half of the field and if you flip your receiver he's flipping with them to then take away the other half of the field it's unlike things we see even the most elite level corners 
do now. I'm not saying there aren't good corners now. We're looking at an era of football where pass defense is as important as ever, and some of the top athletes in the world are covering guys. I'm saying Daryl Revis just did it better. That's what I'm saying about watching Daryl Revis cover guys like Hall of Famer Calvin Johnson all over the football field, giving up a couple inches in height, a couple inches in vertical, and about 20 pounds in strength, and still not letting him catch a football. I know Hall of Famers are made by having lots of Hall of Fame caliber seasons, but I have to go back to his 2009 season in which, over the course of the season and playoffs, quarterbacks, when targeting someone that was in the vicinity of Dale Revis, or quote-unquote covered because they also ran some zone-type stuff by Dale Revis, had a 29.1 passer rating as a quarterback. That would be the worst ever for a starting quarterback to have across a 16-game season, and Revis had that across 16 games for anyone trying to dare throw in his direction. Revis is likely one of, if not the best corners to ever play the game. Let's not beat around the bush here. The guy's a first ballot Hall of Famer for sure. My next Hall of Famer is not, certainly didn't have the kind of like resume coming into the NFL as Revis or Thomas or Freeney, but James Harrison certainly had it by the end of his career. Now, Harrison had trouble making a franchise at first. He came into the Steelers undrafted, eventually played a little bit in NFL Europe before coming back to the Steelers in 2004. However, he's a two-time Super Bowl champion, and when we think of like the 2000s-era Steelers, those great, great Steelers teams between like 2004 5 and 2013, he is the embodiment and soul of those guys on the field. The James Harrison mystique was super, super real. And there's something to be said about a guy that had to work his way up to the career that he eventually had. You had James Harrison in the first Super Bowl he won the Steelers. It's like a special teams kind of linebacker player. It's his first year back in the NFL after having played in NFL Europe. But by 2008, when they make it back to the Super Bowl and they win again, he is a defensive player of the year picking off Kurt Warner and going the other way for 90-whatever yards. Like, he is that kind of defensive player. And I think that that type of growth is the kind of thing that, A, is a phenomenal NFL story. We're talking about telling the story of the NFL. How can you tell without telling about James Harrison and guys like James Harrison? And the type of story also embodies, like, everything about the Steelers franchise. The Steelers franchise story, one of the most storied franchises in the NFL, cannot be told without this guy either. He led the league in forced fumbles a couple different times, led the league in tackles a couple different times. He was a tremendous football player that had those Hall of Fame type of stretches in his career. And I think it's worth mentioning that his story is just that importance to the story of the NFL. I'm putting James Harrison into the Hall of Fame. All right, this guy that I'm cheating to get into the Hall of Fame here, but putting in a ninth person is Cam Chancellor. I understand that Cam Chancellor might not make it in on his first ballot this season because he did just retire a few years ago. However, the six foot four, 235-pound safety, A, changed how we think of as cover safeties because he was a taller guy, a longer strides guy, and covered the field at the deep end. He was not just the down-in-the-box type of safety the way he and Earl Thomas both went back and forth. But he, Earl Thomas, and Richard Sherman are all getting into this thing because the Legion of Boom is all getting into this thing. Or at least I should say Sherman, Thomas, and Chancellor. I don't know if Brandon Browner and Byron Maxwell and Jeremy Lane, like the fourth guy, because that guy, that spot kind of rotated a couple different times, they might not quite get in, but those big three will because that, again, if you're looking at like this pass-happy era of football, 
that defense was revolutionary in how they covered it all up and was generational. Again, telling the story of the NFL, you cannot talk about this past happy era of football and not talk about the Legion of Boom and those early 2010s Seattle Seahawks and how dominant that defense was. Cam Chancellor is a guy I kind of am having to sneak in here a little bit, not because he's not deserving, but because he had a seven-year career with like four or five all-pro seasons and those kinds of things. And much like I didn't put Chris Johnson in because of like the brevity of his Hall of Fame kind of caliber football, I could see someone making the same argument for Cam Chancellor. Those couple of seasons in the early part of his career where Seattle was just that dominant, absolutely Hall of Fame level safety play. If you watched the devastating hits that Chancellor would lay at guys coming across the middle, you understood how just the vibe of the defense shifted how every team came into play in Seattle. If you would see him leap up at six foot four, extra long frame, crazy high vertical, and tip balls out the back of the end zone, you would understand how he was an entire defensive strategy in his self, right? Just having him on your team changed how you were able to play defense. Chancellor, to me, is a sure thing as a Hall of Famer. I enjoyed watching him play, and while I am not a Seahawks fan, I have to say that, and it might be because they had Earl Thomas, I was a big Legion of Boom fan. The swag was really, really real, and so much fun to watch, as long as they weren't playing your team, because it was just different where everyone else is trying to score 50 points they're like you're not going to score more than 12 like that was just how they played defense and i think that as a guy that was a key part of that he and eventually earl thomas and eventually richard sherman will all get into the hall of fame okay parker so the thesis statement for this commercial is james harden has the best beard in sports what do you think about that thesis statement Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we we seem to have an affinity for our beers between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But you're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it'll <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're listening to our show, you can use FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your balms, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out The Beard Struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, The Beard Struggle's got all the products that you need. The Beard Struggle. Feast your face. All right, friends. So that's my class rank. That's who I think is getting into the 2023 NFL Hall of Fame as we celebrate the 2022 NFL Hall of Fame. What do you think? You want to get back at me on Twitter and let me know? You can find me and my personal stuff on Twitter and get at me and tell me what you think at Painsworth512, that's P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H-512 on Instagram and Twitter. I'll be happy to discuss this at length if you really, really want to. This show is also on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, we're at F underscore N underscore sports. And on Twitter, we're at FN Sports 2. It's F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S, number two, all one word. You'll notice on Twitter, we're approaching 8,500 
followers. And once we get to the big 10,000 mark, we add a digit and we're having a big, big giveaway. We have some of our sponsors in theclutch.com, The Beer Struggle, and Yeti handing out gift cards to various people that follow us and them. So again, when we get to 10,000 followers, you're going to want to be following us. You're going to want to subscribe to the show and tune in and listen because once we cross 10,000 followers, within 24 hours, there'll be a new episode uploaded and I'll give instructions on how to win the gift cards in that episode. So make sure you go follow us on Twitter, hit follow on us and all our sponsors, and you can find out how to win that gift card as soon as they become available. If you listen to us on Billy Up and Friends, welcome to the new project that Billy Up is starting. Billy Up and Friends is a place where you can find all kinds of different Billy Up podcasts. So thank you for tuning in to FN Sports along the way there. If you are not listening to us there, you can go check out the Billy Up and Friends podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And along the way there, you'll find ourselves, FN Sports, along with a number of different podcasts. You can kind of meander and wander through and check out whatever type of sports talk you want to listen to. Aside from just the FN Sports Podcast, you can listen to The Sports Stove, The Injured List, No Credentials Acquired, a number of different major Belly Up podcasts all in the same feed. You can just wander, kind of pick out and choose what you want, or you can just hit play and listen to all that. So make sure you go check that out as well. On both feeds, you're going to help with the podcast by hitting subscribe, like, give us five stars, rate, review, do all the wonderful things that help us out wherever you listen to us, and whatever you do when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Are you suffering from chronic joint or back pain? Downtown's Healthcare in Denver offers effective alternative therapies that are non-invasive, non-surgical, and drug-free. Start your journey to a pain-free life. Call Downtown's Healthcare at 303-292-9992, now in Lowry or downtown. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.